Amen. Thank you, Dustin. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Leave it to Seth to critique my wardrobe. He does that about every day in the office, so it's not a surprise that he did it here as well. But on a day like today, when it's heating up outside and this room is full of people and the stage lights are on, I decided to uh, maybe break dress code a little bit and wear a a golf shirt. But it's good to see everyone. Um, It's the second week of August, second Sunday of August. At the end of July, we finished a a sermon series uh, on the book of First Peter. We started that series back in the month of January, uh, trekked with it for a good number of months, wrapped that up at the end of July, and got a couple of weeks before we kind of kick fall ministry into full gear and start a new series. And so I wanted to take the opportunity in just a couple of weeks to preach on our core values. Now we have four core values, and so I had two weeks to preach, so I picked out two of them. Uh, Last week, I preached on growing in Christ, what it means to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see that happening to our people here at Faith Bible Church, and so we unpacked that a little bit, talked about what that looks like, and then this morning, I want to talk about our serve value, what it means to serve the church uh, and the world. I'm going to do that from Jonah chapter 1, so a very familiar passage of Scripture to many of you, Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter together. You might turn there now if you haven't already. And uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 16 together. I'm actually teaching from the New American Standard uh, version this morning. I've left my ESV Bible somewhere in the church. I'm not sure where. It'll turn up eventually. Uh, But uh, I'm going to read New American Standard this morning. Some of you uh, have that, or maybe you have a parallel Bible where you have both. You're in the best of both worlds, if that's the case. But starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Jonah. The text says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into, down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break apart. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they, were, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and, fall, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, "'How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God.' Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and a lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the, man, the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. 
For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. This is God's word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts today. Have you ever heard of selective hearing? Some of you are like, what did he say? What did you just say? If you have kids, every day you experience people with selective hearing. And here's what this looks like at my house. Kids, go brush your teeth. No response. Kids, go brush your teeth. Nothing. Kids, go brush your teeth. Still nothing. Who wants ice cream? Oh, I do, I do, I do, I do. Okay, now that I have your attention, go brush your teeth. And maybe you know this, but uh, selective hearing actually has a scientific name. All forms of disobedience these days get a scientific name. <laughs> and its scientific name is selective auditory attention. And though not a full-blown disorder at this point, the condition is being studied, and what's being revealed is almost every person at some level suffers with it. And it's also being revealed that men deal with the condition on a far greater scale than women do. <laughs> Shocking, I know. And I bring this up today because I want to look at these verses in the book of Jonah. And what we know is that Jonah was a prophet from a place called Gath Hefer. It's a little village in the region of Galilee, actually very near Nazareth. Not um, simply a coincidence that a, a later prophet from that area, a more important prophet, uh, would also come. And he was a prophet, Jonah was, and chiefly what prophets did was they listened for God. They listened for God, and they heard from God, and what they heard from God, they then shared with God's people. If you were a prophet, none of us are, by the way, but if you were a prophet, the word of the Lord would come to you, and when it did, you better not have selective hearing. You better be listening. And I just read the first 16 chapters of chapter 1. We're going to study these verses in four parts this morning. I hope to answer four questions. Why Jonah ran, who pursued him, how he was exposed, and what God would do in spite of him. So why Jonah ran? I'll say it again. Jonah was a prophet of God. This is not a secret. At this point in Israel's history, it's widely known that Jonah is a spokesman for the Lord. Stated plainly, to, to speak for God to the people of Israel, that was Jonah's calling. It's why he existed. Now, wouldn't it be great to have that kind of clarity about your calling in life? I mean, well, what a privilege this is. What, what a grace to know why you exist in this world. Jonah had that. His purpose was to hear from the Lord and to speak for the Lord. And so that's precisely how this book begins. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Not a shocking beginning when we're talking about a prophet. But you got astounding clarity and freedom here in Jonah's life to have the word of the Lord come to you and have God tell you, here's exactly what I want you to say and exactly what I want you to do. Who's prayed for that to happen in their life? We all have. Who's longed for that kind of direction and guidance? We, we all have. I think many of us struggle believing that what we're doing is maybe what we're supposed to be doing. And we face these moments in our lives where all of our chips are sort of on the table and we're pleading for God to, to show us a sign, a message, just a, a hint of his will or his plan. And, and we're trusting God and we know he's good, we know he's for us, we know he's got a plan for us, but it's all kind of unclear. And so we just, we want to hear from the Lord. Have you been there? We've all been there. But not Jonah. 
Jonah's calling and purpose, it was crystal clear. He was a prophet, and the word of the Lord came to him. And how it came to him, we're not told. Burning bush, audible sounds, a vision, we're not told. But it came to him. And we're even told in 2 Kings 14 that Jonah had initially prophesied that the, the borders of the northern kingdom of Israel would expand. And in fact, they did. So Jonah was a prophet after the divided kingdom had occurred. He was a prophet to the north, uh, to the, uh, really the wicked kings of the north. And so Jonah got to be a good news prophet to the northern kingdom. He got to tell King Jeroboam II and the rest of Israel that the borders of Israel would return to what they were during the reign of King Solomon, during the glory days of the monarchy. And so again, Jonah got to tell good news to people who really didn't deserve good news at all. The northern kingdom was spiritually apathetic. The kings of Israel of the northern kingdom, they were an absolute joke, every one of them wicked. But they got good news from the prophet Jonah. And I say all, all that to say that hearing from God, I just cite that instance in 2 Kings 14 to show you that hearing from God was not new for Jonah. The Bible tells us a place where it had happened. When God spoke, Jonah knew it was him, he heard his voice, he got the message, and this time, in this instance that we just read, the message was, go to the great city of Nineveh and cry out against it. Now, Jonah couldn't claim, he couldn't claim selective hearing or, or selective auditory attention. Go to the great city of Nineveh and cry out against it, a very clear directive from God. And here's where this gets kind of strange for Jonah. No prophet, at least no prophet named in Scripture to this point, had ever been told to go and to preach to a Gentile nation. Sure, Moses was called to confront the Pharaoh, and Elijah was called to mock the prophets of Baal, but no prophet had been sent across borders to do anything of this kind, particularly in a place like Nineveh. If you know anything about the Ninevites or the Assyrians, they were brutal, brutal people. A, a, a very strong empire, a very powerful army. When they conquered a nation, they would skin the nation's leaders alive and take the skins back to the capital. And so before we hate on Jonah and, and accuse him of being obstinate and disobedient, realize he didn't really have a category for what God was telling him to do. This was unprecedented. There was no grid. There was no template. There was no model to follow. Therefore, verse 3, listen to the tragic words in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which, as you likely know if you've heard this story before, Tarshish is a long way from Nineveh. Tarshish was on the southern coast of Spain, some 2,500 miles in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. So don't, Jonah didn't just ignore the directive of the Lord. He, he heard the command, got the message loud and clear, and proceeded to do the exact opposite of what God was telling him to do. But notice here, Jonah's desire was not to just get away from Galilee or get away from Jerusalem, or get away from the wicked Assyrians in Nineveh. Look again at verse 3. He rose to go to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Remember when your kids were toddlers? Maybe they still are toddlers, and maybe you have grandkids that are toddlers. You ever go on a walk with a toddler? 
Basically, the whole time, the whole walk, you are keeping that child from dying. <laughs> a walk with a toddler, even a short one, life sort of hangs in the balance. And why is that? Because they have stuff they want to see. They have stuff they want to do. And the whole time you're walking with them, you're trying to train them to hear you and obey you and return to you. But every time they see a dog, it's a test because they want to run and chase the dog. If they see a bike, they want to touch the bike. If they see a group of children playing or a swing set, they want away from you so they can go and be with those children or swing on that playset. Because to them, the dog, the bike, the children, the playground, that's fun. That's life. Not you. You're dad. You're boring. They want those other things. Never mind that, that you feed them and you clothe them and you, you save their life on an hourly basis. They, they don't want you. That's why they're always running away from you. The message is very clear. And really, it's not that you don't want them to have those things too. You actually do. But being with you, that's actually more important because being with you is where real life is found. Being with you will preserve their life. Ultimately, it will lead to abundant life. I think you see where I'm taking this analogy. As adults, our fascinations change from when we're toddlers, but we still believe oftentimes that a better life is found away from God, away from serving God, away from obeying God, away from just being with God. God. And we'll seek after all those other things, even finding them empty rather than serving and listening and obeying God. You see, hearing from God as Jonah was called to do as a prophet, that involved walking with God. It involved seeking his presence, wanting to be close to him. But at this particular command, Jonah didn't just want away from his calling, he wanted away from the Lord. Because his calling was tied to being with the Lord. He's resigning his position. He, he didn't care that his purpose in this world was clear. With this word from the Lord, he is done with all of it. And therefore, he wanted out of God's presence, out of the land, and off to the farthest outpost in the known world, Tarshish in southern Spain. So he went to Joppa. Joppa was the main port on Israel's Mediterranean coast. It was Actually, the location that another Jew, 800 years later, would set sail to reach the Gentile world. That Jew was the Apostle Paul. So Paul pushes off from Joppa to reach the Gentiles. Jonah is fleeing from his call to reach the Gentiles, also from Joppa. Which, that kind of literary imagery and brilliance is actually all over the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is unlike any other book in your Bible. It's literarily, it's a masterpiece. And so Jonah goes down to Joppa looking for a ship. And sure enough, in port, there's a boat headed to Tarshish. It's funny how when you want to rebel against God, there's always just the right opportunity to do that. And so Jonah paid the fare. Sin always costs you something. And he got on board. And so finally, the question that goes along with this point, why was Jonah running? Jonah's motives are not fully revealed until chapter 4. But here the text gives us several clues as to why he is so directly defying the divine command that is on his life. Three factors mainly for his running. First, Jonah was afraid. 
God was summoning a lone Hebrew prophet to walk into the most powerful city in the world and to tell it to get down on its knees before God and repent. So in Jonah's mind, if he did this, the only possible outcome was mockery or death or most likely both. Because Nineveh was a horrific place. Nahum said this to he said this about Nineveh in Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. He called Nineveh the bloody city, completely full of lies and plunder and never without victims. Jonah did not want to be one of the victims of the city of Nineveh. In Jonah's mind, he knew this mission would likely cost him his life, so he is afraid. But, this, but he wasn't just afraid for himself. Jonah's also afraid for his country. If, if, if Assyria was shown the mercy of God and not the wrath of God, well, in Jonah's mind, that, that means they would become a stronger nation. And if Assyria was somehow stronger, they'd become an even greater threat to the people of Israel. And so Jonah, as a, as a patriotic Israelite, he wanted no part of this mission because he has this great reputation to uphold. He, he's afraid of being the 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 prophet held responsible for strengthening this enemy empire. If this mission worked, he, he would not be welcomed home with, with fanfare or thought highly of if he were to die. He, he would be despised as a traitor. He's very afraid of, of being that guy. And so this is bad PR to answer this call to go into Nineveh. Because we have to remember, again, Jonah is this good news prophet. It's very unique as we look at the Bible to have a prophet who simply preached good news. But everybody in Israel's northern kingdom, they loved Jonah because he told them the borders were going to grow, and they did. Israel's returning to its former glory. The Assyrian threat is being diminished. This, this era of prosperity that we're in, it's going to continue. And, and through this message, Jonah had experienced the praise from the people of the northern kingdom. Everybody loved Jonah because, because nothing he said to them actually challenged them. People loved Jonah's sermons because he told them everything they wanted to hear. He only preached blessings, not judgment. I could go on and on about this aspect of his ministry, but I'll just stop there. I'll just say that with this calling, Jonah, on all kinds of different psychological levels, is in fear. He's afraid. Second reason Jonah can't run excuse me, second reason Jonah ran, I should say, is because he was self-righteous. Jonah felt superior to the people of Nineveh, and here's ultimately why he ran. This is revealed later on in the book. Again, Jonah didn't want to see Nineveh saved because he didn't think that they deserved it. Jonah was a Hebrew. He was one of God's chosen people. He was a, a prophet of God's people. And instead of all of that grace, that grace from God humbling Jonah all of it actually made Jonah proud, the exact opposite. He didn't just see himself as one of God's chosen people. Jonah saw himself as a choice person, which is one of the features of this book that makes it so very fascinating. When you read this book, the, the one thing you learn about Jonah is that he's actually a horrible person, which is an interesting contrast because his name Jonah, it means dove, which to a Hebrew, the, the, the dove represented both peace and loving affection. So this man named peace and loving affection, this man named Jonah, dove, 
He's also the son of Amittai, which that literally means son of faithfulness. So we have rich, rich irony here. This is almost satire as we read about this man who couldn't be further from faithful and is not even remotely loving. I preached this book some years ago, preached five or six sermons on it. I'm just fascinated by it. But the title that I gave the book, or I gave the sermon series, I should say, was I Am Jonah. I Am Jonah. And I titled it that way because that is what this almost satirical approach of this book, that's what it's almost designed to do. It's designed for you to almost laugh at Jonah, and then you realize, oh, I am Jonah. I'm a pretty horrible person, too. I'm self-righteous, too. And here's the thing about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness has no room for compassion. Because if you're a person who thinks you deserve God's grace, you will believe that other people have to deserve it also. Compassion isn't in your vocabulary because you don't think you've been shown compassion by God. You think you've received payment by God from your, for, for your good deeds. So God is giving Jonah a lesson on compassion by revealing his heart of compassion for the most violent empire on earth, these Assyrians. And tragically, Jonah is completely shut off to the task. He says, no way, I'm out of here. Find somebody else to go because I'm not going to do it. Why? Because they, in Jonah's mind, do not deserve God's compassion. So why did Jonah run? He was afraid of the wrong things. He had no compassion. And then the final reason he ran, to Jonah, God was a means and not an end. God was a means and not an end. What do I mean by that is this. Jonah loved the blessings of God but Jonah did not love the worship of God. Jonah loved the blessings of God, but Jonah did not love the worship of God. Consider again his prophecy in 2 Kings 14. I've referenced it several times. God in his grace was was blessing Israel, blessing the northern kingdom. It's stated clearly in the chapter that Israel's prosperity prosperity during that period is solely due to the grace of God and his compassion on these people. It's not godliness on a part of the nation. It's not its leadership that is godly. Its leadership is actually pathetic and terrible. It's only God's compassion. However, we do know that they still recognized God as their God, Yahweh as the Lord. They still gathered for worship. They remained faithful to the the rituals. and, And to that, you might be like, well, you know, they don't seem all that bad then. They still practiced the sacrifices and celebrated the feasts. Maybe they were sort of on their way to obedience. And you might think that way until you consider a passage like Amos chapter 5. Amos was a contemporary of Jonah, and God's message to Israel through Amos is this. God said, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. They gathered for worship. They're giving lip service to worship. But what's true? They did not worship. They didn't have a heart for God. They didn't want God. They only wanted his blessings. They only wanted messages like the one they got from Jonah that says, okay, the borders are going to expand. You're going to be safer. And they figured if we keep the rituals going, God will keep the blessings coming. But God says, 
what you're doing is just noise. And the overflow of that is this, and here's where I really want you to tune in. If all you want is the blessings of God and not the worship of God, it will not be in your heart to see others worship him as well. If God is not the end for which your life exists, he'll only be the means for which your life exists. You'll exist for his blessings and not for his glory. Meaning you'll show up to church because you think it scores you points with God. You'll give some money because you think God will then pay you back and owe you some more blessings. You'll keep the rules because God's going to repay you what he's what you're what you due. And if that's your heart, if that's your position and your posture, when God shows up and says, go, you'll say no. When God says, serve, you'll say, those people? Jonah's call was to spread the glory of God, but the fact is he did not care for the glory of God. Jonah cared for comfort, prosperity, safety, for protection, and his actions are proving it. And I think you're catching where this hits us. Where this hits us is the fact that nothing is more disturbing to a comfortable faith or a comfortable church than God's mission for the world. Nothing. I read somewhere this week, a guy said, the excuses we come up with for not obeying God are nothing more than worship songs we sing to our idols. And the idols of the American church center upon managing our blessings. Contrast that to a psalm like Psalm 67, where it talks about the blessing of God, but it talks about the blessing of God in the context of saying, we are blessed to be a blessing. We're not blessed to be blessed. We're blessed to be a blessing. We're we're blessed to see the word of God and the glory of God move forward. And ultimately, if if you put New Testament language to it, to see the fame of Jesus spread and to see people come to to know his name and lay hold of his salvation. If a church or a people loves the worship of God and not just the blessings of God, they will do whatever they have to do to see God worshiped by as many people in as many places as possible. And I want us to be a people who worship God with our blessings rather than a people who worship God insincerely because we think it garners his blessings. He's not a means, he's the end. And so these are the reasons that Jonah ran. He was afraid of the wrong things, he was self-righteous, did not understand God's compassion, and he did not love the glory of God. He did not have a heart for worship. So second, finally the second point. We see who ran after Jonah. I love verse 4. It says, but the Lord. Verse 3 says, but Jonah. Verse 4, but the Lord. Who's going to win this? God's not letting Jonah go. God has a purpose. It involves Jonah. And so God is coming after him. You can reject God, but if God is after you, he is going to catch you. And though you want away from his presence, God is going to make his presence wherever you are. And that's what's being done with Jonah. And his presence results in this storm that comes upon the Mediterranean Sea. The text says that God hurled a wind. So there's this divine, sovereignly directed and created wind, and it creates utter chaos on the sea, and the boat begins to break apart. I love the text because it says the boat threatens to break apart. We have this personification on behalf of the boat. It's threatening to break up. 
And next we see the sailors. They start doing some, some hurling of their own. They're probably vomiting for sure, but it says they're hurling, they're hurling cargo as well. They're trying to gain control of the boat. Same verb used to explain what God did when he hurled the wind connected to what the sailors are doing as they, they're hurling the cargo out of the boat. And the text goes on to tell us that, that these experienced sailors, they are terrified. They begin to realize, that, okay, this is more than just a storm. This is some kind of supernatural event and so they stop trying to control the boat. They begin crying out to their gods. They're seeking divine help. They're, they're praying to whatever God might be able to help them in this moment. And, then, and in the midst of all of this storm and chaos, the rebel prophet Jonah, the one person who, who could have cried out to the real God, the text tells us he is sound asleep. He is so closed off to the calling of God, so hell-bent on his own destruction, so callous to his own behavior that he can fall asleep in the midst of a storm of judgment that he has brought upon himself. But God is pursuing Jonah. Because what this book is chiefly about is not necessarily even this prophet, even though it bears his name. It's certainly not about a fish, even though we always attach the fish to the story. Only two sentences in the whole book have to do with the fish. It's not about a great city. This book is about God. 38 times in 48 verses, this book mentions God. God hurled, the Lord prepared, the Lord came, God sent, the Lord said, God asked, the Lord caused, and on and on and I could go. God is after Jonah. Jonah can run, but he's not going to be able to hide. The Lord's presence cannot be escaped. The Lord's presence is all over Jonah in this moment. And so the obvious takeaway here is this. Don't try to run from God. And if you're, there's a lot of people in this room this morning, and I guarantee somebody here is running from God. You're not going to run, you can't outrun him. You're not going to get away from him. He's going to chase you down. And what, what storms is he going to have to bring into your life? What kind of destruction is, are you going to be faced with until you re- wake up and realize he's after you? His grace is calling you. His salvation is held out for you in the person work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jonah is on the run. God has come for him. Now let's look at how he was exposed. Verse 6, the captain of the ship remembers that there's one more passenger on board. So he goes down to the hold of the ship. He looks for this passenger, finds Jonah asleep. And it's really interesting in verse 6 when the captain says, Arise, call upon your God. And I say that's interesting because the construction of the command from the captain is identical to God's calling of Jonah in verse 2 where he says, Arise, go, cry against the Ninevites. So unknowingly, the captain, the words of the captain, they are, in a sense, mocking Jonah. Jonah got on the boat because he's running from the Lord's presence. This captain is calling on Jonah to pray, which is an act that invokes the Lord's presence. The captain is exposing Jonah's rebellion just right there to his face. And so this causes Jonah to come up on the deck. But as verse 7 shows, Jonah doesn't say a word. In spite of the captain's plea, Jonah doesn't pray. All you hear in verse 7 are these desperate voices from the sailors. 
They cast lots, the sailors do, and since God is in charge of the sea and also the dice, the lot falls to Jonah. It's determined that he is the one who's done something to cause this storm. Yet in verse 8, even though the lots point to Jonah as the culprit, the questions are coming after him now. They still question him. Even though it's clear this is the guy, they still want info. They still want to help him, essentially. Tell us who you are. Tell us where you came from. What's going on in your life? Why are you here? Is there anything that you could have possibly done that might have caused us? Man, you've got some problems. Help us help you, Jonah. His response there in verse 9, he answers only one of the questions they ask. He doesn't respond to all the questions about his vocation or his town or his country. He's not about to talk about being a prophet of God. He simply tells this crew that he is a Hebrew. But then Jonah draws on his spiritual heritage when he describes God at the end of verse 9, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And when the sailors hear this, they respond with even more fear than before because it's Jonah's God who made the sea. And then we see the comment they make in verse 10 to Jonah. What is it that you've done? What is it that you've done? You could paraphrase it. Jonah, if this is the God you believe in and he's doing this all around you, what have you done? How could you act like this? More bluntly, what kind of idiot are you? To do something to your God who made the sea and then come out on the sea and be subjected to your certain demise. And maybe you see it here. Maybe you see the subtlety. Jonah has run from God. God's chasing him down. But it's the pagan sailors who are exposing Jonah's folly. There's tremendous irony in this book. A lot of it's in this first chapter, most of it relating to these sailors and how they expose the heart of Jonah. Just a few points to to consider. Jonah's fleeing the presence of the Lord. These sailors are telling him. They're pagans telling him to seek his God. Jonah didn't fear the Lord. These sailors revere the Lord. The pagan sailors shuddered at Jonah's sin. Jonah paid no attention to his sin. In fact, he just slept soundly despite his rebellion. Jonah wanted to die. He says, throw me overboard, yet the pagans wanted to save him. They rode tirelessly to try to get him ashore. They demonstrated more compassion for one man, Jonah, than Jonah could demonstrate for an entire city, the city of Nineveh. They prayed repentantly, the, savior, the, the sailors did, to, to the Lord, to Yahweh. The prophet Jonah, he would not pray. They worshipped. Jonah did not worship. Which brings us to the last point. What occurred in spite of Jonah? Verse 15 says, So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In verse 12, Jonah had offered himself as a sacrifice. He said, throw me overboard and this is all going to be over. And as a last resort, the sailors do what he'd asked them to do. And just as God had hurled a great wind and the sailors had hurled their cargo to save the ship, now, same word, same verb, they hurled the prophet Jonah into the deep. And when he hits the water, the sea's calm, the wind stops, And just like, if you fast forward several hundred years, just like the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, after Jesus calmed a storm in their midst, these sailors fear the Lord more more deeply than ever. And 
and the, uh, the text says they, they then offer sacrifices. They worship. They make vows. And most commentators agree that at this moment, these men come into covenant with the Lord. They're converted. And I agree with that interpretation because most pagan religions, they consist of performing sacrifices and making vows to get God to act on your behalf, to try to manipulate the gods in all sorts of ways to get them to do what you want done. But in this instance, what they wanted done had already happened. They worshiped after the storm. They're not manipulating God with these vows. They're worshiping God. They're recognizing who he is and giving him his due. This isn't some foxhole conversion. The God who made the sea and the dry land, that is now their God. They see him for who he really is, and they worship him. So God, think about it this way. God, in all his sovereign wisdom and grace, he used the disobedience of a prophet to draw these sailors to himself. Jonah didn't want to see Gentiles saved, so he rejects the call to go to Nineveh. When he did that, Gentiles were saved because God is God, and he accomplishes his saving purposes. Pretty profound. In spite of Jonah, God did great things. In spite of him, God saved a boat of sailors, men who would spend their lives traveling the seas, telling of the greatness of the, of the Hebrew God, becoming the evangelist that Jonah had chosen not to be. Let's go back to those three reasons I gave you for why Jonah ran and consider the parallel here. Jonah feared failure. He feared the Ninevites. He feared his loss of comfort. These sailors feared the Lord. Jonah was self-righteous, lacked compassion. These men showed compassion as they did everything to help Jonah and even save Jonah until ultimately giving him over. Jonah didn't care about God being worshipped. The first thing these sailors do when the sea calms is they begin to worship. I read this from Colin Smith, just another profound parallel as we think about this text. He writes, in Jonah's mind, he was in a good place, doing good work, enjoying a good life. Then God said, Jonah, I want you to go to another place and do a different work for the sake of a people I love, people who face an imminent judgment. And Jonah said, no. But now consider Jesus. He was in heaven, ruling the universe by the word of his power, adored by angels. He was in the best place, doing the best work, and enjoying the best life. Then the Father said, go to another place where you will be utterly rejected. Live a life that will lead to torture, crucifixion, and death. Do the work of becoming an atoning sacrifice for people I love who are facing eternal judgment. And Jesus said, yes. I am just gripped by that contrast. I'm gripped by the parallel nature of these callings. And the one who said yes, and the one who said no. Get away from me. And as I think about that, I've been praying this prayer this week. Lord, make me less like Jonah and make me more like Jesus. Save me. Save me from being the kind of person who cares so much more about my comfort and my reputation and my success than I do about the people you're calling me to serve. Help me to, to keep all my dreams on your altar and be ready at any time to respond obediently to your call because I don't live for my glory. I live for your glory. Serve the church and the Lord. That's valuable to us at Faith Bible. 
And you, you will serve if you fight against your selective auditory attention. If you fight against the tendency you have to hear about needs and very often dismiss them. Because these needs are right in front of you. Needs and opportunities are constantly being exposed to you. Are you hearing them? Are you seeing them? Even around here, presenting the opportunity to to go. Go on a short-term mission trip. Go to Kenya. Go to Honduras. There's a group mobilizing to go to Haiti soon. Go to Haiti. Go down the street. Go go up I-35 to Southeast 15th Street. Get off there and land at FaithWorks and and serve there. You don't even have to get on an airplane. No passport required. Start giving generously toward missions. Your money follows what you treasure. If you treasure the lost coming to Christ, give to those who are heralding Christ, to those who otherwise will never hear his name. Develop a relationship with a missionary on the field. Start emailing them, corresponding with them, praying for them. Invest your heart in their work. Read up on missions, read biographies, and read missionary stories to your kids. There's nothing more stirring than missionary biography. Take the perspectives class, which will train you on the different perspectives, the strategic and historical and biblical approach to missions. Sponsor a compassion child. What What a great way to serve the world. Next month, Seth Brown and I are going to Honduras to visit a bunch of compassion centers and see what they're doing on the ground. We just believe so strongly in, in mobilizing our church to serve the world in that way. And here's one. This one's pretty simple. Walk across the street. Talk to your neighbors. Start talking to a, to a lost coworker. Take them to lunch. Call that wandering family member and have that challenging conversation. God has put you in contact with certain people for a reason. Tune in. Listen to him. How do I know that God wants you serving well, I believe you're never more like Jesus than when you serve. That's how I know. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and, and, and then we're going to close, actually, by sharing with you an opportunity to serve. This sermon's mostly been about missions or cross-cultural engagement, serving the world, but this announcement's going to be an opportunity to serve the church because that sits right here in front of you as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for <clears throat> this time together. Thank you for this text of Scripture it's just so stirring and dramatic and rich and, and really challenging. Lord, I'm convicted of my tendency to be Jonah. And Lord, I, 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 I thank you for showing me compassion and running after me despite my rebellion. Lord, I pray that we would be a, a church that's quick to serve, that's quick to sin, that's quick to go, Lord, that we would recognize that, that we're not just out here doing missions, but this church, we are the mission. You're, you, you, you've, you've given us a mission, and that's to reach a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, thank you for uh, this time together. Bless these people in Christ's name. Amen.